Would you remain standing as we read our scripture together this morning from Acts thirteen forty-two uh, to 51. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles." For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city, stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. This is God's word. You may be seated. As a reminder, you can find our messages on YouTube at LifePoint Church of Olympia. Uh, you can also find them at mylpcoli.com forward slash media. And uh, this morning, if you're taking notes, they're in your program, but also they're available online at mylpcoli.com forward slash notes. And uh, I've never done that because I'm always up here and you're always down there. But um, I'm told you can email that directly to your own inbox. Well, what do you do when you find that God has opened a door of opportunity uh, for you to share the gospel. Maybe it's in your workplace. Uh, maybe it's at school. Maybe it's at, in your family, your neighborhood. Um, maybe it's at the gym. Uh, what do you do? How should you proceed? What, what should you anticipate? What if things go sideways? And uh, this text that we are studying today gives us five principles uh, that really respond to that question, and I'm going to jump right into those. Number one, communicate spiritual truth. Communicate spiritual truth. When God opens a door of opportunity, your one goal is to communicate the truth of God's word, to share the gospel. Let's just be reminded of where we were last week. Paul and Barnabas had sailed northwards across the Mediterranean from the island of Cyprus, um, to uh, probably the, the port of Italia, from there to Perga. And from there they traveled 150 miles northward over the Taurus Mountains to the city of Antioch in the Roman province of Pisidia, which the Romans later annexed into the province of Galatia. And uh, if you're a, a knowledgeable of the, of the Bible in any way, you'll recognize that Paul wrote a letter to the churches there in Galatia, later on known as Galatians. Having arrived there in Pisidian Antioch, 
On the very next Sabbath day, Paul and Barnabas attended the local synagogue. And it says they, they entered the synagogue and sat down. Paul was somehow recognized as a visiting rabbi and by way of tradition was invited to bring a word of encouragement, of exhortation to the congregation, an invitation that he gladly accepted. And as he addressed the mixed congregation of both Jews and God-fearing Gentiles, he established rapport right away with them and credibility by beginning with a history of the nation of Israel from Abraham right down to King David. And then from King David, he leapt a thousand years forward to the promised son of David, Jesus the Savior. His resurrect, or his rejection by the Jews, his crucifixion at the urging of the Jews and by order of the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate. And uh, Paul makes clear along the way that Jesus' suffering and death were direct fulfillments of what God had foretold through the prophets, that the Jews in Jerusalem had unwittingly carried out all that was written um, regarding the Messiah and the law and the prophets. But Paul didn't conclude that message with a message of guilt and condemnation. Instead, he brought a message of redemption to them. Uh, and renewal. He, he very intentionally announced that God had raised Jesus from the dead, as the scriptures also had foretold. And then, and then he said, let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses." So in short, Paul proclaimed to this audience of Jews and God-fearing Gentiles the message of the gospel, the the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the crucified and risen Savior, that there's forgiveness of sins and freedom from condemnation through personal faith in him. And then he concluded with a quote from the prophet Habakkuk, chapter 1, verse 5, a warning to those who might hear the the mind-blowing message of the gospel but fail to believe it, thereby missing the opportunity to receive God's offer of salvation. And, And that verse says, Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if no one tells it, or even if one tells it to you. So what do we see? That, that God had opened a door of opportunity for Paul and Barnabas to communicate spiritual truth. Paul was invited uh, by the ruler of the synagogue to address his congregation and bring a word of encouragement or exhortation to them. That word that Luke used that's translated in encouragement in the English Standard Version is, is an important one. It's paraklesis. The word para means with or alongside, and klesis comes from the verb kaleo, meaning to call. So in our case, Paul's paraclesis for the Jews in Antioch was an intimate call. Now, I love that, I love that uh, translation of that word, an intimate call to them that, that revealed the will and the word and the work of God in Jesus Christ. So in other words, Paul had taken the opportunity to clearly and directly proclaim the gospel, communicate the gospel in a personal way that called for a clear and direct response. So when that door of opportunity opens for you and you take the opportunity to to communicate the gospel, to communicate spiritual truth, remember this, that, that no proclamation of the gospel is complete without a call to personal response. And that brings us really to our text today, beginning at verse 42, because my oh my, did they respond 
in Antioch in Pisidia. Luke's description in verses 42 to 44 reveals that they responded in three different ways. First, in verse 42, it says, as they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. I looked up that word begged. You know what it means? It means begged. It means that they begged for more of the gospel. They they pleaded urgently for more of the gospel, more of God's word. Uh, they were spiritually hungry. Now, their response here reminded me of Paul's description of the, the Thessalonians to Paul's proclamation of the gospel when he wrote to them, and we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you, believers. So Paul says, you heard the word of God from us. You recognize that it was not ultimately from us, but from God himself. And his work began, his word began to do its work in you from the moment you received it right away. I remember uh, the opportunity, an opportunity I had years ago to, uh, to travel to Ukraine. And uh, we were in the, the city of Irpin, which uh, you might recognize that name because during the the opening of the war, the current war between Russia and Ukraine, uh, that city was just decimated. Um, but I had the opportunity uh, to preach on the streets, which is not something I have ever been comfortable doing. Um, <clears throat> but a crowd gathered, and we preached the gospel, and I was just blown away at the spiritual hunger of the people that day because and I never think of myself as an evangelist, but 20 people received Christ that day on the street in Irpin. Uh, absolutely blew my mind. Spiritual hunger. See, when, when God matches someone who's willing to share the word of God with people who are spiritually hungry, things begin to happen. Well, that word uh, followed, let me, oh, verse 43, I'm getting ahead of myself. After the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. That word followed means exactly what Jesus meant when he said to each of his 12 apostles, follow me, follow me. It means that they joined themselves in this, on this occasion to Paul and Barnabas. They became their disciples. And because they weren't about to wait for a, a whole week until the following Sabbath to hear more of what they had to say, they spent every moment they could with Paul and Barnabas to, to learn everything they could from them regarding Jesus and the salvation that God offers through him. Now, notice Paul and Barnabas' response to them. They spoke with them, it says. They, they interacted with them. They didn't take their spiritual hunger lightly. They took it very seriously. They spoke to their minds as well as to their hearts. I think they probably answered the many spiritual questions that they had with patience, communicating, clarifying the message of the gospel until they had accepted the message and, more importantly, accepted Jesus Christ as their Savior, believing in him. And how do I know that? Because the last line in verse 43 says that Paul and Barnabas urged them to continue in the grace of God, to continue. You can't continue something until you've begun that thing. They had heard the message of God's grace. They had received the message of God's grace. 
and they had personally believed it. And so now Paul and Barnabas are urging them to continue to hold on to grace, to abide in grace, to persist in grace. In Paul's letter later to these same people, in chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, he wrote this, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. How important is it to continue in grace? How important is it to persist in grace? They had run into some people that wanted to distort the gospel. Over in chapter 3, beginning at verse 1, let me read this. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit? Are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing it with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scriptures, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. We're saved, the Bible tells us, by the grace of God through personal faith in Jesus Christ. How important is it that we continue in the grace of God? And, how, and what a struggle it is, isn't it? I mean, don't you feel like there are days when you think, how could God love me? Because here I am back in this groove of sin again. Here I am repeating the same sins over and over that, that Christ died for. So we want to revert to works of the law. It, it makes more sense to our natural minds. But Paul said to the Galatians, and, and apparently it had happened after they had left, that they were bewitched, they were mesmerized, they were drawn away from grace by those who wanted to corrupt the gospel. The third great expression of responsiveness to the message that Paul and Barnabas brought them regarding the grace of God in Christ is seen in verse 44. Where, where Luke records that the next Sabbath, almost the whole city 
Almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. Almost the whole city. Talk about a response. I mean, remember that Pisidian Antioch was a cosmopolitan city. It was filled with people from a variety of nations, both Jews and Gentiles. Um, strong mil- Roman military presence there. Can you imagine what it would be like if the majority of the population of Olympia, Lacey, and Tumwater and uh, in, in unincorporated Thurston County gathered to hear the word of the Lord? If there was just this incredible revival of spiritual hunger, uh, it could happen, right? It could happen. We should pray for that. The Holy Spirit is unlimited in power and authority, but but where would we all gather? See, I don't think there would be enough seats in all the churches, stadiums, and theaters combined. And I'm not here to suggest that every time the gospel is accurately proclaimed in a community, we should expect this kind of response. But here's what I am here to say, that when God opens a door of opportunity for you to share the word of God, whether with the religious or the irreligious, your job is to communicate spiritual truth. To share the gospel in the power of the Holy Spirit, call for a response. And then just trust God for the results. Don't try to be the Holy Spirit. Allow the Holy Spirit to work through you, but don't try to be him. He doesn't, you don't need to be the one that convicts people of their sins. If you try to do that, you'll just be annoying. You won't, you won't be redemptive. There was a meme floating around the internet for several years that was attributed to St. Francis of Assisi. It read, preach the gospel at all times. If necessary, use words. And we get it, don't we? We get that. The meaning is don't just talk the talk, walk the walk. Let your lifestyle proclaim the gospel as much as your words do. But that meme has two basic problems. First, Francis of Assisi never said it. I think it was actually Abraham Lincoln or maybe Mark Twain or Ben Franklin or nobody ever. Second, though, and most importantly, the, the, the fatal flaw in that philosophy is that no matter how spiritually mature you may be, your life will never be the gospel. Your life will never be the gospel. Um, you won't walk into a room and have people fall down in repentance before the Lord. It's just not going to happen. See, you can't preach the gospel without using words. It's a message to be communicated in clear words. Paul wrote in Romans ten seventeen. so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. If you're hoping that the people around you who don't know Christ will come one day come to know him, you need to do whatever you can to make sure they have the opportunity to hear and respond to a credible presentation of the gospel message. See, there, there's no other substitute. Paul's goal was by all means to save some. By all means to save some. Periclesis, the intimate call. Do um, you know that more people come to faith in Christ through a friend or a family member than and through all other means combined. You can stack up Billy Graham and Luis Palau and Greg Laurie and all of their evangelistic crusades. Every other, every other means presentation of the gospel from a pulpit in a church. There are still more people who come to faith in Christ through a friend or a family member than through all of those means combined. And, and that tells us that 
There's power in that intimate call, paraclesis, coming alongside to share the gospel in an intimate way. Secondly, when God opens a door of opportunity and you capitalize on that opportunity to communicate the gospel, here's what you can anticipate. You can anticipate spiritual opposition. Verses 45 to 47, when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. See, when we read in verse 45 that, that two-word phrase, the Jews, we should think prim- primarily, though, though not perhaps exclusively, of the Jewish leadership in Antioch. That's generally what that expression means. There, there may have been others involved in the opposition that was mounted against the influence of Paul and Barnabas there, but what was their motivation? Luke tells us that the Jews were, what, jealous. They were jealous. They saw the crowds of people from all over the city, both Jews and Gentiles that were gathering to hear what Paul and Barnabas had to say about Jesus. And the, the Jewish leaders had never... Uh, ever in their wildest imaginations experience the kind of popularity these two were experiencing. All of a sudden, the, the new kids on the block. So what did they do? Two things. First, they began to contradict Paul, arguing with his teaching. In order to do that, they had to contradict Paul's teaching about Jesus Christ. His his identity as the eternal Son of God, the Messiah, the, the Savior, his resurrection from the dead, the gospel of justification by grace through personal faith in him. They had to make Paul and Barnabas and Jesus, Jesus himself out to be liars and frauds. And second, Luke says, the Jews began to revile Paul and Barnabas. And revile isn't a word we, we hear used very often these days, though we're no strangers to the activity of reviling. There's all kinds of reviling that goes on every night on the news. The, the word translated revile is the word blaspheme, and that means to verbally abuse someone, to, uh, to slander them, to say all kinds of evil things about them. Were Paul and Barnabas discouraged by this? Nope. Not in the least, and, and neither should you and I be when we experience similar treatment because of our faith in Christ. You may be reviled because you're obnoxious, because you're a jerk, but but don't be discouraged when you are reviled for your faith in Christ. Jesus himself taught us in Matthew 5, 10 to 12, blessed are you, blessed are you, when you're persecuted for righteousness' sake. For yours is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. See, it's possible that you and I will be verbally abused for the gospel, uh, verbally or otherwise, when, when we attempt to share our testimony of faith in Christ with someone, it might go badly. It's, it's very possible that it could go badly. Nobody enjoys being verbally abused, but Jesus isn't suggesting And hear this, Jesus isn't suggesting that we should in some sick way enjoy the opposition itself. When when we're being 
barraged by baseless accusations that are at best half-truths and often outright falsehoods. Instead, he reminds us that, hey, they, they persecuted the prophets before us. We're in good company. We, we can take it in stride. We can rejoice and be glad in spite of it because of the reward that awaits us in heaven. We know why we're being reviled. Paul would reflect later in his, in his letter to the Ephesians that the real battle is not taking place in the realm of the senses. That, that, that is in ways that we can see, hear, feel, taste, or smell. Instead, it's taking place in unseen spiritual realms. And our struggle is not ultimately then against human beings, but against demonic powers aligned with Satan himself. There's a clash of two kingdoms taking place 24-7 in the spiritual world. It's a satanic strategy. You remember that, that Satan revealed his strategy really for all time in the Garden of Eden. When he began with Eve, asking, did God really say that you should not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Did, did he really say that? Are you sure? Are you sure that's what he said? And so his first strategy is always to, to insert doubt, to, to insert confusion. Um, And then to, uh, and then to begin to revile, to contradict and revile. He, he says, uh, you shall not surely die. And then, and then here's the reviling. For he knows that when you eat of the fruit, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like him, knowing good and evil. In other words, Satan was trying to say, as he always says, that God is trying in some way to keep you down. He wants you to question God's word. He wants to contradict God's word. He wants to blaspheme God. He wants to assign malign motives to God and, and any anybody who's a messenger of him. In his letter to the Colossians, he wrote that God has rescued us who have trusted in Christ from one kingdom, the kingdom of darkness, and he's brought us into the kingdom of the son whom he loves, the kingdom of, of Jesus Christ, that, that other kingdom, the kingdom of, of righteousness and light. So they responded to the Jews, Luke says, with boldness. And he prefaces his hardest words with the affirmation, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, to you Jews. Remember that Paul followed the principle of synagogues first in his missionary efforts. To the Romans, he wrote that the gospel is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. To the Jew first and then also to the Gentile. But he makes two statements about their attitude by way of response. First, that they had thrust the gospel aside. That is, they had volitionally refused it, that they had rejected it, they would pushed it away. And the second one is really interesting. He says, you judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Isn't that interesting? You judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Rather than delving into this as a clinical psychological observation, we probably should just simply accept it for what it is on its face. That word judge is the word used for a verdict that's handed down in a courtroom. So in essence, Paul is saying to them, by rejecting the true message of the gospel, you have pronounced judgment on yourselves. You're condemning yourselves. And on that basis, the missionary team then says, we are turning to the Gentiles. And, and, and here's where Paul finally makes that, that 
that final pivot toward the non-Jewish world. Paul, the one who was called to be the, the apostle to the Gentiles, here's the decisive moment where he becomes that apostle to the Gentiles. And, and he backs up his declaration biblically, quoting from the prophet Isaiah at 49, verse 6, For so the Lord has commanded us, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. See, the scope of salvation is worldwide. The scope of God's redemptive activity is worldwide. Isaiah 49 is a messianic prophecy. That is, that the main subject is Messiah himself. But the thrust of verse 6, which we, we just read, extends beyond Messiah to his people Israel, who were called to be missionary people and reneged, and in turn also, to the church. And God is calling people, isn't he, from every nation, every tribe, every tongue, every people. Third, this passage teaches us to celebrate spiritual rebirth. Celebrate spiritual rebirth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. The Gentiles began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. You know, if if you're a person uh, who, who has always felt that you're standing on the outskirts of the people of God, that you're kind of a fringe person, that you're really not a naturalized citizen of the kingdom of God, you're you're just kind of always out there on the fridge, then then you will rejoice at the realization that God's heart really is and always has been for you as well. Just as much as anybody else. And here's that truth, that reality, and then Luke makes this radical statement, as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. As many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And I want us to pause right here and and think about that statement for, for a moment. Who were they who believed? As many who were there that day as were appointed to eternal life. Notice what Luke does not say. He does not reverse the order and say, as many as believed were appointed to eternal life. So if you're a Christian today, which came first for you? Your, your appointment to eternal life or your belief in the message of the gospel? Which was it? Let me be direct. The answer is what came first was your appointment to eternal life. Go with me to the gospel of John, chapter 6, verse 44. Jesus is speaking and he says, No one can come to me. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. What's Jesus saying? He's saying that, first of all, that apart from an intervention of the grace of God, you and I are incapable of coming to him on our own. Tim Keller tells the story of sitting in a classroom with a when a professor addressed a question to a co-ed who happened to be sitting in the chair directly in front of Tim Keller. 
And the question was to this student, it's a Christian classroom, question was to this student, why are you a Christian? And the girl responded, well, because I believed. And the professor then asked, why did you believe when so many others have not? To which she responded, because I repented. And the professor came back again, and why did you repent when so many others have not? And the girl answered, because I admitted that I'm a sinner. And again, the the professor pressed the issue, why did you admit that you're a sinner when so many others have not? And so it went. And Tim Keller said that it dawned on him that day that that if he had been chosen by God because he believed in Jesus, then it was an indication that there must be something in him that was better, wiser, humbler, than in others, something that that somehow made him more attractive to God than others. And that if he somehow lost whatever that was, then he would accordingly lose God and lose his salvation. And as he contemplated that, it, it occurred to him next that if it's true that I'm not chosen because I believe, but rather that I believe because God has chosen me, then I can never lose my salvation because God's choosing is always irrevocable. I won't lose my salvation because God will never lose me. This principle, this truth, this doctrine pervades the pages of the Bible. In Romans 10.20, for example, the Apostle Paul quotes the words of God through the prophet Isaiah, I have been found by those who did not seek me. Think about that. I've been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. In John 15, 16, Jesus said to his disciples, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. A couple of chapters from now, we'll read of Paul's ministry in the city of Philippi in Macedonia on their first Sabbath there in that city. They met a woman named Lydia who became the first convert in that city. In that city, Luke records regarding Lydia that the Lord opened her heart to pay attention, give heed to or understand to what was said by Paul. Do you see, had the Lord not first opened her heart, she could not have understood the message of the gospel. That's what Paul is saying. She could not have understood the message of the gospel as Paul brought it to her and to her companions. But because he did, she believed and was baptized. See, what we're talking about here is what theologians call the doctrine of divine election. And it it strains the mind. It says simply that, that none of us would ever seek God or choose God unless he first sought or chose us. See, you didn't choose God because you believe, the only reason that you ever had the opportunity, or the capacity for that matter, to believe is because you were first chosen by God. But someone might ask, isn't that unfair? It strikes us as quite undemocratic, doesn't it? And the reality is that we're not in a position to understand how or why God does his choosing. So neither are we in a position to make a judgment. Everything we know about God uh, from the remainders of Scripture tells us that he is more than fair, that he is completely wise. 
He is sovereign and, and unparalleled in his wisdom. He is completely just, which is even better than fair, isn't it? In 1 Corinthians 1, Paul taught that God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. See, our real struggle with the doctrine of election is that it insults our pride. It does. We want to be the ones in control of our relationship with God. We want to be the ones that choose him, not the other way around. We want to be our own saviors. But if it's true, if it's true that the only reason I believe is because I'm chosen, then here's what it is. It's all grace. It's all grace. God's love has come to me unmerited and unconditional. God is a God of sheer grace. There's nothing in me and nothing about me and nothing that I have done can ever do or will ever do that merits salvation. It's all grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. And there's no room for boasting. Edmund Clowney once said, the Bible doesn't say you're a Christian because you're choice. (laughs) Isn't that good? The Bible doesn't say that you're a Christian because you are choice. It says that you're a Christian because you were chosen. You were chosen. I frequently have people ask me, how do I know for sure that I'm a Christian? How do I know that? Because I'm struggling, struggling with sin in my life, keep doing these things over and over again. Here's how you know. You were attracted by the gospel. The only reason that you were ever attracted by the gospel is that God was God had chosen you. God was calling you. Again, remember, Jesus said, no one comes to me unless the Father draws him. You were attracted by the gospel. There are some people who hear the gospel, respond Not. There's just no response. You were attracted by the gospel. Secondly, you felt genuine remorse for your sin. You felt conviction of your sin. And and then you you recognized your need for a Savior. And we, we forget how supernatural that reality is all by itself. And then you transferred your trust to Jesus Christ and, and his accomplishment on the cross on your behalf. And though you continue to struggle with sin, you you continue to to cast yourself on the mercy of God and the grace of God, and and you know that your only standing before him is in grace. Paul wrote to the Romans and said, we stand in grace. We don't stand in merit. We don't stand in religion. We don't stand in right doctrine even. We stand in the grace of God. been a lot of years, but when I was younger and I was working with youth especially, I'd, I'd hear them occasionally come with the question, Have, do you think I've committed the unforgivable sin? Because they felt deep remorse over sin. And, and Jesus said there's, there's one sin that's unforgivable, and that is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, which is to reject the, the, the work of the Spirit in your life, to reject Jesus Christ ultimately. 
That's the unforgivable sin. And so what I would say to them is, because I, because I knew about their, their walk with God, I knew that they had trusted in Christ. And, and what I would say to them is the very fact that you're concerned about, um, about that tells me that you have not committed that unforgivable sin. Those in Pisidian Antioch who were chosen, who were appointed to eternal life, believed the message of the gospel that day. And there was great rejoicing, as there should always be when someone believes and receives eternal life. The gospel, that says, then continued to spread throughout the whole region. Well, next, this passage tells us to investigate spiritual hostility, uh, to, to, to understand its nature, to understand its source when we become its targets. Luke tells us that the Jews did three things to methodically escalate hostility toward Paul and Barnabas as an eerie parallel in today's news. There are three verbs in verse 50 that capture the action, but the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city. Secondly, they stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas. And then third, they drove them out of their district. First, they incited the devout women of high standing and the leading women of the city. It seemed to be a political kind of thing. Luke may be, refer- may be referencing Jews here, but, but given the makeup of the populace of Pisidian Antioch, they're more likely Gentiles because the Gentiles were in the majority in that city. And whatever little bit of angst the prominent men and women of that city were experiencing over the spiritual spiritual and social revolution that was occurring in Antioch, uh, that was all fanned into flame. And secondly, they stirred up persecution. They said, okay, take that anger, take that angst, and, and turn it into action. And so they stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas. They aroused both Jews and Gentiles to to punish them violently. And third, they just drove them out of the city. And I think it's, it's, it's very difficult for most of us American Christians who have never experienced overt persecution for our faith in Christ or for our proclamation of the gospel to fathom what it might actually be like for our neighbors to turn against us and to violently treat us. Um, I want to suggest to you this morning that that day may come in our lifetimes. And each of us individually and and all of us as a community of believers had better consider in advance whether we're going to hold on to our faith in Jesus uh, and how we'll respond if and when open, unfettered persecution comes our way. Paul and Barnabas demonstrate that there comes a time when we need to physically and emotionally separate from spiritual resistance. I thought afterwards I probably should have used the word there, recalcitrance. Spiritual recalcitrance. Verses 51 to 52, but they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. What does that expression mean? They shook the dust off their feet against them. Think about the visual effect. The dust that had accumulated on those sandals, on those, those dusty feet, they just, uh, as they were in Antioch, uh, would fall off as they shook their feet just before leaving town. And uh, it was something more than shaking a fist. It, it went deeper than that. It was a, a symbolic expression, not just of anger, but of contempt. See, by, by shaking your dust off of my feet, 
I'm cleansing myself of everything about you. I'm separating myself from you. And as you and I proclaim the gospel in our cities and in our neighborhoods, there there may come a time when the response of some who have heard the message becomes so agitated, becomes so hostile that a decision has to be made about whether we remain in a particular place or, for that matter, to remain in a particular relationship. Uh, There's a time to let go and simply trust God for the the continuing growth of whatever seeds of the gospel have been planted. And that's what Paul and Barnabas did. They, They shook the dust of Antioch from their feet and moved on to the next city, Iconium, another city there in Galatia. But notice here that they didn't, they didn't hightail it out of town with their heads hanging low and their tails tucked between their legs. That, that's, that's not the posture they were in. Luke says the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. How was that possible in those circumstances? How, how did they experience joy? How did they perceive a, a new filling of the Holy Spirit? In spite of how things turned out in the end, God had used them to lead many to faith in Christ, and, and he filled them again with the Spirit for their upcoming mission in Iconium. See, God's great reward for faithfulness and obedience is joy. Is joy. It doesn't mean you always feel good. It may mean that you're... You're battered and bruised. But when you're battered and bruised for the purpose of faithfulness and obedience to God, there's joy in that. And when, even when we're exhausted or we wonder where the power is going to come from for the next leg of the journey, he keeps surprising us, does he? Doesn't he? By, by filling us again and again and again. As I was thinking about this this morning at an old song came to mind. It was written in the late 1800s. I wasn't alive then, though I looked like I like I was. But but the title of the the hymn is "We Rest on Thee, Our Shield and Our Defender." And in verse three, um, goes like this: We go in faith, our own great weakness feeling, and needing more each day Thy grace to know. Yet from our hearts, a song of triumph pealing, we rest on thee, and in thy name we go. I love that. See, when God opens a door of opportunity for for you to share your faith, run through that door before it closes. Run through that door before it closes. Communicate spiritual truth, Anticipate spiritual opposition. Celebrate when God brings about spiritual rebirth. Investigate spiritual hostility. And if it becomes necessary, separate from spiritual recalcitrance and move on to a more receptive audience. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the model of Paul and Barnabas. Thank you for the the incredible nature of your grace. That, uh, that goes beyond all of our sin, all of our failure, and, and goes to your heart and, and your choosing. And Lord, we, we don't know why you chose us, but we thank you that you did. 
And Lord, that we can identify those who have been chosen by the simple fact that they believe and repent and and put their faith in Jesus Christ. And Lord, help us to be faithful in communicating the powerful message of the gospel, the power of salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.